Please be seated. Good morning, church family. It is great to see so many of you here, especially on what is the last Sunday in August. How crazy is that? It is amazing how quickly this year has gone. Now, I realize most of you were probably on edge this week, that after nine months of being in the book of Ephesians, you've probably been pondering and stressing about and trying to figure out all week what is next, what book in the Bible is next, and where do we go from here? And that is a good question. And next week, we will begin a new study on the book of 1 John. Thus, let me highly, highly, highly recommend that you take some time this week and read through the book in its entirety and become familiar with the unique writing style and the content that makes up John's first epistle. But as for today, we will be looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, when I found out that Tim Bertolet was a Hebrew scholar and wrote his dissertation on Hebrews, I might have told him half-jokingly that as long as he's here, I am never going to preach a sermon on the book of Hebrews. And it only took me 10 months to go back on my word. So let's get this out of the way quickly. If you have any questions about the book of Hebrews or about my sermon today, just find Tim, he's probably got a bow tie on, and ask him for the answer. How's that sound? I'm only half kidding. Jokes aside, church, I pray that this morning we as a congregation see and hold fast to the superiority of Jesus Christ, as is profoundly displayed in this beautiful text. Now, for some background on the book of Hebrews before we begin, Dr. Walter Martin described the book of Hebrews this way. He said, the book of Hebrews was written by a Hebrew to other Hebrews, telling those Hebrews, stop acting like Hebrews. And why did he describe the book of Hebrews this way? Well, this letter seems to be written to Jews, to Hebrews who had become Christians and who are now facing persecution because of it. You see, for these Hebrew Christians, if you will, they likely were being ostracized and excluded because of their Christian beliefs. Now, why is that important to understand? Well, because for these Jews who became Christians, their standing in society, it was greatly reduced because of their conversion to Jesus Christ. For example, many of them lost property because of their conversion. Many of them faced persecution and physical harm because of their conversion, and some even ended up in prison because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So in essence, when these Jews affirmed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, their life, it got turned upside down, and quickly it became hard. Like, really hard. Therefore, it seems only natural for this thought then to creep into their mind. That, man, life was easier as a Jew without Jesus Christ. Thus, should we just go back and give up Christ and go back to our old way of life? And similarly, isn't that what our secular society is telling us today as Christians? That if we as Christians just give up the Bible and become more enlightened, then things would be much better off. 
That if we as Christians just give up our dated teachings on sexuality and marriage and become more open-minded, then things would be much better off. That if we as Christians just give up the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and admit that all religions are the same, then things would be much better off. And not just better off, but we as Christians will finally get ourselves on the right side of history. And to which the author of Hebrews would reply, No, Christian, endure for Jesus Christ. He is worth it because Christ is superior to all. Which takes us to our thesis statement this morning, or the main points that we will be looking at in our sermon this morning. Our thesis statement this morning is this. God, who is a relational God, spoke to his people culminating in the revelation of Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten Son of God and superior to all. God, who is a relational God, spoke to his people, culminating in the revelation of Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten Son of God and superior to all. And our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The author of Hebrews writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you spoke to us. God, you have revealed yourself to us culminating in Jesus Christ. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only means of salvation, because you spoke to us. You came into this world and saved us. Father, we thank you for being a relational God, a God who calls human beings who are dead in their sin back into relation to yourself through the work of Jesus Christ. Father, this is a text this morning that showcases your grandeur. It showcases your bigness, your vastness, your glory. And Father, I pray that you open our eyes this morning, open our ears, soften our hearts to receive and to see you who you actually are. Jesus Christ, you are superior to all. Father, I pray that you help my lisping, stammering tongue this morning. Father, give me the words to speak. Let me be humble. Let me be bold. Let me be convicted. And above all else, let me truthfully share your word this morning with this dear flock, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll begin this morning with our first of three points. Point number one is our relational God has spoken to his people, and that is good news. 
Our relational God has spoken to his people, and that is good news. Verses 1 and 2. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, I don't want to belabor this point too much, but in short, when the author writes in verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, he's saying that from creation until the birth of Jesus Christ, God communicated his will to his people via the prophets. And we see this take place throughout Old Testament history with numerous prophets communicating the will of God to the people of God. Prophets like Moses and Elijah, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Zechariah and Malachi. Furthermore, God communicated to his people through these prophets, verse 1, in many different ways. God communicated to them via direct revelation, God communicated to them via visions and dreams. He communicated to them via representations of himself and types and signs. So in essence, the author of Hebrews here is saying that in the past, in and through many different ways, and in and through many different prophets, God, he spoke. The supreme, transcendent God of the universe decided to speak and reveal himself to his created order. I mean, how amazing is that, church? But have you ever stopped to ponder why? Why did God speak to his created order? Carl F.H. Henry explained it this way. He said, God will not be known if he does not speak. And we cannot know him if he has not spoken a word that we can rely on. God must reveal himself. And the logic here is really quite simple. Since our sin has separated us from a holy God, God either speaks or we are eternally alienated and estranged from him. God either speaks or we remain dead in our sin. God either speaks and reveals his plan of salvation to us or we face his eternal wrath through eternity. And that is what is at stake, church, if our God does not speak. But... But, but, I have good news this morning, church, because our God, he did speak. Because of his love for his children, God spoke through the prophets to begin to reveal his plan of salvation for his people. God spoke to gradually begin to reconcile his children back to himself. God spoke in order to sovereignly bring about his eternal kingdom. Thus, for that reason, I have some free advice for you this morning, Christian. And I mean, this is earth-shattering insight right here, and it is something you will want to write down. Are you ready? When God speaks, we best be listening. When God speaks, it is wise to listen to him and not to the world. And this might sound obvious, but we live in a society that simply wants to listen to and gush about and fawn over our politicians or influencers, and our celebrities. And we see this all the time, whether in person or from the media or via our social media accounts. Individuals basing their decisions, their beliefs, and their ways of life on what famous people have to say. 
Oh, did you hear what Oprah had to say about that? We should do it. Did you hear what the Kardashians had to say about that? We should watch it. Did you hear what Beyonce had to say about that? We should support it as if they were infallible. And here is the world's problem summed up succinctly in three points by William Newell. He said, the atheist, they deny God's being. The deist, they deny that God has revealed himself, that he has spoken. And then a great multitude of our society just ignore what God has to say altogether. Thus, I am almost fearful to ask this question this morning, church. But is that last one ever us? Do we ever find ourselves ignoring what God has to say? Do we ever find ourselves basing our lives, raising our kids, and what we should support on what the world says we should? Or do we find ourselves consistently rejecting the deception and lies of this world, all in an effort to hear and to listen to and follow the very word that God has spoken to us, which culminated perfectly in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 2, because in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You see, the author of Hebrews, he introduces here a new phrase or a new clause in order to contrast it with what was previously mentioned. And the contrast here is this, that no longer is God piecemealing bits of information to his people about the Messiah through the prophets. No longer is God using types or shadows to point his people to what is to come. But now instead, God has made his plan of salvation as clear and as obvious as he possibly can, as God has spoken to us through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who is, verse 2, the heir of all things. Jesus Christ, he is the inheritor, meaning the Messiah, God's son, Jesus Christ, is the one who owns all things, possesses all things, and enjoys all things. And how do we know this? Colossians 1.16, because all things were created for him. But Jesus Christ, he's not just the possessor of all things. Verse 2 says he is also the one who created the world. John 1, it says that in the beginning, the word Jesus Christ was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made that was made. Therefore, church, behold your God this morning, who speaks to his people through Jesus Christ, his very son, the one who created all things, the one who possesses all things, the one who fulfills all things, and the one who has been revealed as the sovereign king, Lord. Lord and ruler of all. That is Jesus Christ, God's perfect and saving revelation to man. Which segues us now to point number two, which is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his divinity is displayed in his power and in his accomplishment. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, His divinity is displayed in his power and in his accomplishment. Verse 3. It says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Thus, church, if you ever wondered how God would act here on earth, if you ever wondered what his compassion for others would look like, how his glory would be displayed, the author of Hebrews would answer those questions this way. He would say, then look to Jesus Christ who is the exact imprint of his nature. And verse 3, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And I've heard this misconception make its rounds in recent years within various evangelical circles. It's this notion, this idea that God created the world, but then just kind of let it go. This idea that God created the world, but now the world just kind of runs by itself apart from God. Now this notion, it does take into account the theological concept known as the transcendence of God. The fact that God does exist outside of time and outside of space. However, what this notion fails to take into account the idea that God created the world and just let it go, that the world now is just kind of running by itself, what that notion, what that idea fails to take into account is the theological concept known as the eminence of God, or the fact that God is still present with us in time and space, that there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, Ephesians 4. Thus, if for one millisecond, Christ would stop upholding the world, the entire thing would disintegrate. It would all just collapse and crumble and die. I mean, think about the laws of nature for a second in light of the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. Hugh Ross, who's an astronomer with his PhD from Toronto University, noted the following concerning the Earth's rotational rate. He concluded that if Christ did not uphold the Earth's rotational rate just perfectly, and if the Earth rotated just a little bit faster, then the Earth's surface wind velocities would be too great for life on Earth to handle. And if the Earth rotated just a little slower, then it would be too hot during the day and too cold at night for advanced life to exist. That means me and you. Or consider the Earth's oxygen levels for a second. If Christ did not uphold these levels perfectly, and if the Earth's oxygen levels were just a little greater, then fires would erupt spontaneously. In fact, you could catch fire just by walking down the street due to the friction between your legs. And if the oxygen levels were just a little lower, then we wouldn't have enough oxygen to breathe. As John Calvin noted, without Christ upholding everything, all things would instantly come to nothing were they not sustained by his power. Church, we depend on Christ's sustaining power for every breath we take, every step we make, and everything we do, as it is Christ who upholds us and the universe by the word of his power. But please, please, please do not leave here today just observing the divine power of Jesus Christ. Be sure also to observe his divine accomplishment this morning. Verse 3. It says that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And what an accomplishment that was. The purification, the cleansing of man's sin. Boyce Mouton shared this story about a man named Ignaz Schemelvis. 
Ignaz Schemmelvis was born in 1818. At the time, the finest hospitals in the world lost one out of every six mothers due to childbed fever. Back then, a doctor's daily routine began in the dissecting room, where they performed autopsies. From there, they made their way to the hospital to examine expectant mothers without ever pausing to wash their hands. Dr. Schemmelvis was the first man in history to associate such examinations with the subsequent infections and death. His own practice then began washing with a chlorine solution. And after 11 years in the delivery of 8,537 babies, he lost only 184 mothers, about 1 in 50. He spent the vigor of his life lecturing and debating with his colleagues on the subject of the importance of washing their hands. He once argued, we talk, 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 gentlemen, but women are dying. I am not asking anything world-shaking. I am asking you only to wash. But virtually no one listened. Schemmelvis died at the age of 47, his wash basins discarded, his colleagues laughing in his face, and the death rattle of a thousand women ringing in his ears. Mouton concludes, Wash me. It was the anguished prayer of King David. Wash. It was the message of John the Baptist. And unless I wash you, you have no part of me, said the towel-draped Jesus to Peter. Church, without being washed, without being cleansed, without being purified. We all die from the contamination of our sin. There is only one who cleanses sinners of their sin. There is only one who can offer sinners purification for their sins. Therefore, grasp this morning, church, the accomplishment of your Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the law that we failed to keep, Jesus Christ, he kept it. The punishment that we deserve for our sin, Jesus Christ, he bore it. Our fate of eternal death and damnation, Jesus Christ, he overcame it. Our sin, he forgave it. Our filthy rags, Jesus Christ, he washed it. Reconciliation back to a holy God, Christ alone, he offers it. And God's work of eternal salvation, Jesus Christ, he revealed it, fulfilled it, and eternally accomplished it. And how do we know this? How do we know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ accomplished the purification of our sins through his work on the cross? Because just as a person puts their book down when it's read, just as a person puts their fork down when their meal is eaten, and just as a person puts their pen down when their letter is complete, Jesus Christ, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And not because he was tired, not because he was worn, not because he was weary, but because he completely, absolutely, and totally accomplished the Father's will of purifying, reconciling, and reuniting sinful man back to a holy God. Thus be in all of your Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning, church, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power and who purifies, justifies, and saves sinful man from their sin. Oh, be in all of your Savior church this morning, the one who is Jesus Christ. Which brings us to point number three. Jesus Christ is superior to all. Jesus Christ 
he is superior to all. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now you may be sitting there this morning thinking, um, yeah, of course Jesus Christ is superior to the angels, Pastor. Everyone knows that. And even when I asked my five-year-old son, Theo, who is superior, Jesus or the angels? He looked at me shaking his head like, you're the pastor, Dad, shouldn't you know that? It's Jesus. But then I asked him, well, how do you know that Jesus is superior to the angels? And he thought for a second and said, because Jesus saves. He's a smart kid. He gets it from his mother. However, the answer to that question, church, it wasn't quite as obvious to some of the Jews. As Robert Cargill pointed out, Jewish tradition affirmed that the Mosaic law, the law that was given to Moses, it was given to them by angels. And because the Jews loved and they exalted their law, they then began to elevate and uplift angels and their standing to the point of error. So as Joseph Beeson explained, the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make here concerning the superiority of Jesus Christ to the angels, it goes something like this. That if you Jews who glory in the law in which you believed was given to you by angels, how much more then should you glory in the gospel which was given to you by the one whose inherited name is the Son of God? If you Jews who glory in the law which you believed was given to you by angels, how much more then should you glory in the gospel which was given to you by the one who created and sustains the world? If you Jews who glory in the law in which you believe was given to you by angels, how much more then should you glory in the gospel which was given to you by the one who makes purification for your sins, who is, Ephesians 1.21, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is superior to all. And if you need any more proof that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels, then consider the angels' thoughts on this matter. The Apostle John, he wrote in Revelation 19, 9 and 10, he said, And an angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the land, Lamb. And he, the angel, said to me, said to John, these are the true words of God. Then I, John, fell down at the feet of the angels. John fell at the angel's feet to worship him. And the angel said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Thus even these angels knew without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is superior to all because there is only one God and there is only one one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, who was, who is, and who will forever be, church, superior to all. Thus, as we close this morning, I'll begin with the non-Christian who is here. Non-Christian, I shared earlier that as a society, we have become so quick to listen to the world. We have become quick to listen to the humanist, 
to the atheist, the agnostic, the pluralist tell us that we just need to live our best life now. That we just need to get ours, that we just need to be whoever we want to be, love whoever we want to love, live however we want to live, and worship, submit to, and follow whatever rules we want. And that is the world talking. A world that has become futile in their thinking and foolish and darkened in their hearts. Thus, don't you think it would be wise, non-Christian, especially in light of all of the hate and all of the violence and all of the death and destruction and pestilence surrounding this nation to shun the futile, foolish, and darkened ways of the creation and instead listen to the perfect, powerful, purifying word of the Creator who said whoever conceals their trespasses will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy, and who sent his son Jesus Christ into the world as the means of that mercy? And how did Jesus Christ mercifully save sinful man, you might be wondering? By keeping the law perfectly for us. Jesus Christ on our behalf, he kept the law that we could not keep. He fulfilled the law that we neglected, and he satisfied the law that we continue to break. And Jesus Christ, he not only kept the law perfectly on our behalf, he also paid the price for our breaking of the law. Meaning Jesus Christ stood in our place, and the wrath that we deserve for our sin, Jesus Christ, he bore it as our substitute, he atoned for it. Our wickedness, our sin, our law breaking, he died for it. Jesus Christ, he died on a cross as God the Father poured out his holy wrath on Jesus Christ, the wrath that we deserve for our sin. But being that Jesus is perfect and never sinned, being that Jesus Christ is God, and being that Jesus Christ appeased the wrath of God towards sinful man, on the third day, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead for our justification. And all who trust in the accomplishment of Jesus Christ, they can be purified. They can be saved and reconciled back to their Father God through eternity. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you turn from your sin that you repent of your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can cleanse you of your sin, the only one who paid the price of your sin, the only one who can clothe you in his perfect life, in his righteousness, and reconcile you back to God forever. And today will be the day that you will be purified of your sin and you will see Jesus Christ as he finally is, as your Savior, as your Lord, and as superior to all. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you place your trust in Jesus Christ for the purification of your sins. And today will be the day that you are saved. And to the Christian who is here today, brother Christian, sister Christian, we began this morning with a thesis centering around the idea that Jesus Christ is superior to all. Thus, Christian, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question this morning. Do you live in a way that showcases your faith, your confidence, and your trust in the fact that Jesus Christ really is superior to all? Do you live in a way that showcases your faith, your confidence, and your trust in the fact that Jesus Christ really is superior to all? 
And while you ponder your answer to that question, let, let me leave you today with this parable. It's the parable of the pearl of great value. And it comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. It reads, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now the main character in the parable is that of a merchant, a person who buys and sells for profit. And this merchant is searching for fine pearls. Now a little background, pearls in the ancient Near East, they had more value than gold, more value than silver, and more value than that even of diamonds. So when the jewelry merchant, when he spots one, when he spots the one, he instantly sells all that he has because nothing compares to it. This pearl is more valuable than anything he has ever seen. And that pearl, it represents Jesus Christ and the eternal life that is found only in him. Thus, Jesus Christ, he holds more value and is superior to anything imaginable in this life. He holds more value than any job or any career you could ever have. He has more value than any house you could ever own. He has more value than any ring or clothing brand you could ever wear. He is superior to your political affiliations. He's superior to your denominational preferences. And he is superior to any business affair. Christian, if you have Jesus Christ, you are complete. Therefore, be satisfied with me this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian. Be well pleased with me and rejoice with me because in Christ you have all that is needed to experience eternal joy with your God. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body leave here today satisfied in the superiority of Jesus Christ, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the one who possesses the power to create and to sustain the world, and the one who displayed the power to accomplish the purification of sin for sinful man. Thus help us, Father, help us to see Jesus Christ for who he truly is as superior to all far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Let us walk out of here this morning, church, joyfully following the supreme, the transcendent, the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, who will reign forever and ever as one who is superior to all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, we just don't see clearly. Help us, Father, to see Jesus Christ as he truly is. We are not here to simply study him as an academic subject. We are here to be in relation, in communion, and worship the God of the universe. Open our eyes, Father, I pray. Help us in everything we do to showcase the trust we have in Jesus Christ. In everything we say, showcase the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ, who saved us while we were dead in our sin. 
Father, we cannot even fathom the power of Jesus Christ, the one who sustains the world. We cannot fathom the power of Jesus Christ, the one who accomplished purification for our sins. But we do know he accomplished it. We do know that he sustains it, and we know that he will come again. Help us, Father, to long for that day, but in the here and now, to live for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.